This special episode of Girls on Film was recorded live with an audience at the Queen's Film Theatre in Belfast as part of Cinemagic's On the Pulse Short Film Festival. Here's one of my fabulous guests, Ronnie Ancona. Now it is a wonderful thing. There are so many more women in film and comedy and television and they're real kind of kick ass, you know. But for us, it's almost like people have decided that women can be funny, which is wonderful and I celebrate that. I also speak to Sally Phillips and Sophia Miles in today's Girls on Film. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello, everyone. Absolutely lovely to see you here today. As you gathered, I'm the host of Girls on Film podcast. Absolutely delighted to be back at Cinemagic. This is our third time here. A bit about me first. I'm a film critic for the BBC, Time Out, Deadline, and I used to head up the UK Critics Circle. Girls on Film, we launched four and a half years ago. It's a fun feminist review show. Do we have any listeners in the house here today? If you could give us a whoop and a clap for the, the listeners at home because we're recording this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and do we have any young filmmakers in the room today? Give us a clap and a shout. Excellent. Well, welcome to you and other people also welcome. Just great to have everyone here today at Cinemagic. We've got a number of fantastic guests for you today. Honestly, I have told them they're my dream cast and it really is very much a thrill uh, to introduce them to you today. First of all, I'm going to to talk a little bit about Cinemagic and how important the On The Pulse Festival is for us. I think it's really wonderful to be here with all the masterclasses. Has anyone been to any good masterclasses, workshops? Yeah, we're getting some nodding. I'm also curious to know, because of course this is a short film festival, you must all be very proud of An Irish Goodbye that won the Oscar. Isn't that amazing? What a film. Um, I know it's come up in some conversations here in this festival and what a great example of what you can do. So on to my guests today. My first guest is a very talented actor who I remember watching from the start of when I started um, writing about film in about 1999. She's been in Doctor Who, Spooks, Transformers, uh, Outlander, many short films, which makes her absolutely perfect for On The Pulse. Before I welcome Sophia Miles, let's have a look at a clip from Doctor Who in which she's with another Girls On Film guest, Billy Piper, who we've had on in the past. Let's have a look. There is a vessel in your world where the days of my life are pressed together like the chapters of a book, so that he may step from one to the other without increase of age, while I, weirdler, must always take the slower path. Who's right about you? So in five years, these creatures will return. What can be done? The doctor says keep them talking. They're kind of programmed to respond to you now. You won't be able to stop them, but you might be able to delay them a bit. Until? Until the doctor can get there. He's coming, then. He promises. But he cannot make his promises in person. He'll be there when you need him. That's the way it's got to be. It's the way it's always been. The monsters and the doctor. It seems you cannot have one without the other. <laughs> Tell me about it. Amazing. Well, please welcome to the stage, Sophia Miles. Hello, welcome. 
here she is, the lady herself. So good to see you. It's good to see you too. Welcome to Girls on Film. We've spoken before and, you know, I, as I said, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, but we only sort of met on Zoom recently. How are you enjoying Belfast anyway? Loving it. Yeah. I've, kind of, I've only really seen my hotel room and a restaurant, but I'm really enjoying You've it. You've been yeah. here before, right? I have. I did yeah. only once, though, and I did a radio play. So kind of similar situation, came in and just did the work and then went home. But I'm going, I think I'm going to go to the Titanic Museum tomorrow. Ah, excellent. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you started in the business when you were very young. 15. Wow. Wow. Um, it's a big question, but I'm curious to know from your perspective as, as a young woman then, what kind of challenges did you encounter? And, you know, I'm hoping to take a positive slant in that, that hopefully young women are not having those, such pressures now. Gosh, it's such a long time ago. It feels like another life. I mean, to be honest, I've always felt incredibly safe and welcomed on film sets. I haven't really had any negative experiences that have had anything to do with, you know, my gender. Honestly, like, I love my job more than anything in the world, well, apart from my son. Um, <laughs> and for me, it's just always been a pleasurable experience. I mean, you get the odd... I tell you one thing that I didn't like, and I don't think this was to, to do with the fact that I was a woman, but I was shooting this film called Outlander, which is set in Viking times in Norway, and then this alien ship crash lands onto planet Earth, carrying with it an actor, Jim Caviezel, and the, this kind of crazy dragon creature. And... Towards the end of the film, my character, Freya, who's a sort of Viking warrior, takes on the dragon, and I, I'm not going to spoil the end. So the dragon, when it spits, they wanted it to have this kind of ultra-violet sort of yellow glow to it. And they, they came up and they said, right, we're going to put this on your face. And you know those glow sticks that you crack? And I said, they're highly toxic. I'm not going to put that on my skin. You know, God knows what would have happened. And I remember them kind of indicating that I was being difficult, you know? <laughs> and often, like, when you do I, I do... I did find, as a young woman, when I tried to stand up for myself, sometimes I was sort of disrespected a little bit. But that's one of the joys of, you know... You have to be careful, because as, as a woman, they're so quick to say, oh, she's a diva, just because you're on your period and you need to go to the loo and it's going to disrupt filming. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think that men have a similar experience, actually. You know, when a male actor is a little bit difficult. They kind of often say, you know, oh, well, he's a genius. You know, that's his thing, you know. I think I that makes sense. It, it does. I mean, certainly from my perspective, a lot of women that come on the podcast have said that, but I hope it feels like that's something that we're aware of. And we're checking our language a bit more now when we talk yes. about women. One of the first films I saw you in, which you did first, uh, with Mansfield Park. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and we have, I think, after this, uh, a picture, this female director's film, of course, and we have a picture of you with your co-star, Lindsay Duncan, back in 1998. Yeah. Wowzers, look at you there. And this leads me on to my next topic. <laughs> so you've done a number of short films recently, and you recently reunited with Lindsay for November the 1st, which was a winner at the Student Academy Awards. Congratulations. Thank you. We're going to have a quick look at a clip, but do you want to say a little something about the film first? So I played Lindsay's daughter when I was 18, and subsequently I've now played her daughter twice again recently, so we're always, you know, we're Brilliant. always stuck together, so we're like <laughs> a sort of double act, but... Great, well, let's have a look at a clip of November the 1st. I'll have my glasses in the car, you read for me. Hi, Bonnie, Carl here. We're all still planning Even ladies, to Hold it, kid! Can't you see we're talking? We are talking. It's Carl. We're still planning for everyone to be at central office tomorrow morning at 10.40 a.m. I will call you if anything changes. 
Now you can talk. Sorry, ma'am. Why are people always calling me? Mom. I'll have the number 28 with a side of slaw, please. Mom? Just pick something. Was there nowhere else we could have gone? She'll have the same as me. No, I won't. I'll have the number 10. Number 10. Okay. Thank you. That's such a great short film if you get a chance to. It's, it's, it's a very serious and tough but gripping watch, but the, between the two of you is amazing work. Do you develop a bit of a shorthand after having worked together several times? Yeah, I mean, look, Lindsay Duncan is, you know, she's a master at her craft. So, and I remember I learned a lot from her when we were shooting Mansfield Park back in 1998. And she's always just been so lovely to me. She's so talented. It's just... It's wonderful, you know, working with someone like her. Short films, you've done several. Yes. Would you like to talk about the experience of making them, perhaps particularly this one, um, for the people in the room that are looking to make their own short films or made some already? Yeah. So, basically, so I had a, ba I had a baby eight years ago, like I said, and short films work brilliant for me because it takes sort of between, I don't know, nine and 11 days to shoot. Um, and you see the beginning, the middle and the end in the script, so it's all clear. Yeah, I mean, I think a good... A good short film kind of captures a particular moment in time or just t tells one part of a story. And I, I kind of love that. Um, and now the quality of short films, I mean, I'm, I've started to watch them now. I didn't even know they really existed before having a baby, but they're great. They're great to work on. Really great. What advice would you give anyone here who's looking to make a short film? First of all, go for it. Get the script right first. Without a good story and a good script, there's no point filming anything. And I think, like I just said, you know, a good short is, is sort of focused on a period of time. I mean, this movie takes place over two days. Um, the mother and daughter are on their way to watch the execution of the man who killed my brother and her son. Yeah, but, but you know, sometimes a great short can just be a, you know, I don't know, one scene or a couple of scenes of a couple having a discussion or whatever. But... Um, yeah, just go go for it. And also, I'm available for hire. I don't have anything lined up. So. I was going to say that. It's, you know, these people must think think this is incredible. Sophia Miles is is agreeing to act in my film. So it's, it's a case of if you don't ask, you don't get. I suppose because people might think that you're too busy to do these things. Or yeah, yeah. never be shy. You know, if yeah. you, I think in the industry. I mean, I didn't do it enough when I was younger because I was I am quite shy at heart. Although I've learned to you know deal with it better. Back in the olden days, I would be sitting here shaking. I wouldn't, I'd be very nervous talking to a live audience. So one thing that actors love, if you bump into an actor that you admire, always go over and tell them that you like their work. We love it when we're praised, you know, because we're all <laughs> deeply insecure deep down. So always compliment an actor on their work. And, you know, if you've got a script and you feel it's good, you know, don't be shy to, you know, send it to people's agents. But also, you know, just bite the bullet. Hand, come and talk to me afterwards about it if you've got any projects that you're working on and I'll do my best to give you some more advice. Well, that's wonderful. In fact, we do have uh, time for the audience to ask you some questions and we have a roving mic. So if anyone's got wants to follow up on that and ask, not necessarily offer you a role, but uh, I've also got some social media questions we've got in advance. So to warm them up, I will do that. So I think you've answered the first one, what made you decide to take more roles in short films. As a short film actress, what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? This one came to us from Twitter. I mean, there's no difference making a short film to making a feature film. And I've, I've always said, you know, I pick work based on the script and the story. If I love the story, I don't really mind what format it's, uh, it's 
hold on, whether it's TV, film, short film, it's all, it's all the same. I mean, my, my work, my job doesn't change. Do we have any hands up? Hi there, uh, my name's Joanne and I teach uh, moving image arts in, in the school across the road, Methodist College. Personally, I would like to know, would you think of directing? Because my students would have to be director, editor, uh, lighting, yeah. acting, mise on set, everything. They have to do everything. I have little inspiration to direct drama, um, but... I've always loved, doc I watch documentary movies. That's what I watch, documentary film. I generally don't watch many movies, which I, maybe I should, I don't know. Um, but I, when I've seen people like Louis Theroux, Stacey Dooley, I've always sort of felt, I'm like, oh, I could do that. I'd love to do that, to be in front of a camera and also to direct a documentary. I think that's where I'm going. I'm about to go to America later this year to film a documentary all about the social service system in the States which apparently is incredibly corrupt. And this shocking figure that 57% of children who grow up in the care system end up in prison. So that I'm I can't wait to do that. I can't wait. It's kind of fun. I think to be able to actually be in front of a camera just as me will be a refreshing change. That's great. Great question. Thank you, Alan. Loved hearing about that. We've got one Yeah, I'll tell you all about back it. Back there. Thank you. And then a couple more. Hello. My name is Matthew. I'm a uh, film student at the HND in Creative Media Production. And I wanted to ask, who is your largest inspiration in terms of becoming an actor? Do you mean who do I admire as actors or who's, who's inspired me to become one myself? Who's inspired you to become one? I was spotted in a play at school, just regular school when I was 15, by Julian Fellows, who I'm sure you all have heard the name. He, he wrote Downton Abbey. He won an Oscar for his screenplay of a film called Gosford Park. I tell you what he did. He kind of, he opened up this whole new world to me. I was quite badly bullied at school. But when I arrived on film sets, everyone was nice to me and I felt like part of something. I felt included rather than sort of pushed aside. But Julian, I would say, I mean, he's more of my mentor than my inspiration, if that makes any sense. Great, thank you. And there's one more here. Hi there, sorry, my name's Donal. I just wanted to know, uh, do you feel that over the years or decades, um, opportunities for women, you know, uh, both character-wise and actress-wise, have become better? Like, for example, for example, I'll take the 30s film uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I'm sure you've sure all seen that. Despite the fact that Snow White was the main actress, or the main character, sorry, it was mainly all the males that were the heroes. It was really the dwarves and the prince that was given the opportunity to do something. Whereas uh, nowadays, well, I like to feel that women are given, you know, there more opportunity to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that's, do you, would, would you agree with that? Or do you, would you say that there's more, uh, more to be done about it? Yeah, thank you. No, I, I completely agree with you. You know, when I was younger, in my 20s, I... Um, was often cast as a, the ingenue. But when it came to the scripts, the men seemed to have more of a kind of gritty, emotional story to tell, whereas women, you know, were kind of there just to look pretty and be desirable. And I never really felt with my younger characters that they went on the same emotional journey as the characters that I'm playing now. I mean, the reason that I wanted to make November 1st, if you see it right at the end, there's a big payoff. There's a moment that my character has just one scene and, and that scene made me want to do it. Um, but also I said to the hair and makeup people, cause I'm ready now, I mean, I'm 43 and I've always felt like a character actor trapped inside a leading lady's 
body. But with November 1st, I said, right, give me the most unflattering hair length, most unflattering hair color, shitty clothes and glasses. And so it was really, really nice to kind of suddenly the freedom of not having to kind of make an audience fall in love with you or to look perfect in every frame like that was taken away. And God, it was lovely. So lovely. (laughs) Great question. Great answer. Thank you for that. And yeah, we wanted to use that clip, but it was almost too much of a spoiler. So, yeah, just watch the short film. Do watch it. Absolutely, because you're phenomenal in that moment and the whole thing. Um, Sophia, thank you so much. Please stay on stage if you just move up to the end there and we'll welcome our next guest. Round of applause for Sophia Miles. <laughs> so my next guests are two of Britain's best-known comic talents, whether they're on stage, on TV, film, writing. They are teaming up to make films together. Sally Phillips and Ronnie Ancona, please join us. Yes. Ronnie there, Sally here. <laughs> hello, hello. Welcome back to Girls on Film. This is your third time. Thank you for having us, and thank is you for having really us. Third Cinematic. time. Amazing. You, you've always been wonderful supporters of Girls on Film. I think I first um, spent time with you both properly at the, um, in Cannes at the Palm Dog Awards where um, we were all... I'm a judge. It's for the best canine performance in Cannes. You can see us there on stage um, meeting Quentin Tarantino, no less, who came to accept uh, the award on behalf of the dog in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is a standard. Brandy. Just so you know. Sophia, Brandy. you're a dog fan as well. Is that right? Oh, I love dogs. Yeah. I like dogs more than humans in general. <laughs> Um, so we're going to talk about Captain Dolly in a bit, which is what you both work together on at the moment. But before we get into that, um, I'm sure a lot of people here recognise you both for different reasons. But I wanted to sort of say that when I was a young woman watching television, I sort of loved the fact that you were both working in what was usually a very male-dominated area of TV comedy, whether it was The Big Impression, Alan Partridge, Smack the Pony. Um, I wanted to share a couple of clips. And first, let's have one um, from Ronnie. I'm afraid I'm a little short. I can see that, darling. Now, that'll be pound sixty-four. No, I mean, a bit short of the amount. By how much? All of it. Oh, I can't bear to see you go empty-handed. Please take it. Don't worry about the money. Cheers, lady. Said he was skint, did he? <laughs> As I thought. Your charity case there is just spit off in a lotus while we still haven't paid for those brown sauce sachets. <laughs> Champagne, darling. You know, Audrey, sometimes I think you're not cut out for this business. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant, Audrey Hepburn there, Ronnie. Do you have happy memories of filming that? Well, it's a very... Um, I've talked to Sal about this quite a lot, but it was very interesting. Alistair and I... Ha- to battle so hard. We did a series of Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant running a burger van off the M6. And we we thought, and I'd sort of written them and I thought I was quite excited about them. The BBC said, you've got to be joking. Nobody knows who they are. You know, it's the most, they became increasingly surreal throughout the series of, of, of sketches we did. And it was a very interesting learning experience about comedy writing because I, in our defense, we said, but it doesn't matter because if you layer up comedy writing, if you make it appealing, i.e. if just some people think 
those are two people that shouldn't be running burger van. Do you know what I mean? It's quite obvious they're not fully equipped to be, <laughs> to be dealing with that. Then that's funny on one level. Then the people who, you know, do know who Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, then they get a little extra layer. And then finally, your, you know, your aficionados who know all about Hitchcock, all the way through the sketches, there were lots of, you know, a lot of Hitchcockian references and the whole thing was like a, on top of it all was sprinkled like a Hitchcock narrative. So there does tend to be terrible snobbery from commissioners in comedy. They presume always that, um, you know, Doreen from Leeds, they will use this ominous to, yeah. to blanket brush stroke <laughs> people you know and I remember getting when I was doing posh spice getting my nails done in some nail bar in Brixton and this really young girl said oh I, I just I love that I love the Audrey Hepburn you do that you know and I just thought I just wished that somebody you know from the BBC could sit and listen because they're so patronizing sometimes <laughs> <laughs> well it went down very well with the room here and of course you know I have to ask you which impressions go down particularly well with audiences at the moment well it's funny because Olivia Coleman came in and I'm actually a huge fan but I had to hide under the table because I actually been doing her quite a lot only ever says things in five words last word very quick <laughs> very versatile as an actress I can play the queen and also Broadchurch I'm a detective Philip look after the corgis body on the beach got to go <laughs> so um, yes there are some people that I who are delightful and I'm always a huge fan of them so imitation yes, is the I'm greatest form of flattery they say I suppose so maybe Olivia will say something different <laughs> I don't know We'll I'm sure we're going to request for more impressions later, but I'm going to move on to Sally now. Um, Sally, I, I know you for many things, but I mean, Smack the Pony was such a groundbreaking series to see, you know, these female comic actresses on TV, you know, creating your own work, creating your own series. Truly groundbreaking stuff. Would you like to speak a little bit about that before we watch a clip from Smack the Pony? Yes, well, I mean, the, I'm immensely proud of it. And I didn't realise at the time that we weren't going to get that kind of creative freedom again. You kind of feel that this is going to follow you through life. But I suppose I'd say to the Cinemagic students that uh, when you're young, you have incredible creative freedom. So really go for it. We were also, I mean, this was a, when we started, it was just agreed that women weren't funny. And so it felt terrifying and we felt so responsible. I remember thinking, this had better be good because otherwise no woman will be allowed to be on the telly again <laughs> being funny. Um, so we felt very, very sort of stressed about it. I had a lot of arguments about what should be in and what shouldn't be in. Huge rules like no periods, no parodies, um, no punchlines, because we decided that the, um, there's a specific sketch structure, which is the pull back and reveal where you think the situation is one thing and then there's a sort of reveal, pull back of the curtain, you reveal it's something else. And we decided that was a very male structure, kind of flasher sketch structure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had none of those. No repeating characters, so there was an increase of, you know, a lot of, it was very uh, material hungry, no punt, no uh, catchphrases. The opposite of the fast show, basically. The opposite of the fast show. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing wrong with the fast no, show. No, the fast no, show I was completely great, but yeah. it did feel yeah. to us at the time, because we took it so immensely seriously. That was the thing. I think that's often the way with our age group, women in film and television, that it feels so rare. It used to feel so rare that you get a go 
that you were very, very spotty about it and really, really tried your absolute best and you didn't turn in homework with stains on it. And, you know, so, um, yeah, we took it very, very seriously and I'm really proud that it does seem to have moved the dial a little bit for women because there are loads more women doing comedy now than there were. Oh, unbelievable. Uh, yeah. This huge number. The sketch that you're going to show, it became like the sketches I would write as kind of diary, really. So, you know, bad date would, you know, it'd go through a slightly sort of morphing process, but come out as a sketch. And so the sketch you're going to show is imposter syndrome, that feeling of, I can't believe I've been allowed. And it's maybe not the best sketch, but I thought it was quite appropriate for this audience. Unfortunately, clients often misunderstand the term yeah. integrated marketing yeah. and has been much maligned in recent years. Yes, well, especially in the USA. Yes. As it describes a much narrower approach, i.e. that of integrating marketing communications themselves. Yes. And there's an increasingly diverse range, such yes. as broadcast and narrowcast advertising. Yeah, relationship marketing. Sponsorship, uh, events promotions and PR. Mm. And does that really matter? <laughs> Absolutely no idea. I can't even hold a big newspaper. Absolutely brilliant. I feel so ahead of it. It's time now, really. Yeah, amazing. Does everyone here have imposter syndrome? Most guests that come on Girls on Film have said that they have. For me, I, I had this realisation last week because I, when I in the film industry, I always think of myself as the youngest person in the room because I always was. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, wow, like I'm now that old that I'm getting invited to speak to the younger generation. When you say you're that old. No. <laughs> can I just stop you? No. <laughs> Don't go on. <laughs> She's young. Stop now. <laughs> I'm surprised to sort of be invited, to be honest, because I do think this is a really interesting thing that we're noticing now we've now we've got a company that especially as actresses, you learn to be ordered about, don't you? You take direction, you go and, you know, a bloke says, go over there, do that. You do that. They say, I disagree. That's wrong. And you don't really answer back or you're thought of as difficult. There's an uh, assumption that it's taken us a long time to recognize that sometimes we do know better than other people. It feels a preposterous thing to us to go, yeah. you know, no, actually that, that edit looks bad. It needs to be like this. It and is really strange because I think that Sally and I sort of from that generation now, it is a wonderful thing. There are so many more women in film and comedy and television and they're real kind of kick ass, you know, but for, for us, it, it's almost like people have decided that women can be funny, which is wonderful, and I celebrate that. But it was like, oh, we were kind of paving away. But certainly the way we were treated, it, it was hugely different. Um, I, I think um, it's still now, though. You see, now you are allowed to have an opinion. That's great. That's a great change. The next level is that then they say, no, you're wrong, and you say it again. And I think we need to build up, we, we need to build up our resilience to have the, because we don't like conflict. We want everyone to be happy. But you can see in the creative partnerships in film, historically, there's this sort of double solitaire thing of these two creative 
geniuses, a producer and a director, say, both men, and they hate each other and they're rivals and they spur each other on to great work. Whereas because we have, you know, we want to make peace all the time, I feel that it's something we need to train as women, need to, um, maybe it's maybe in the younger generations, it's not a gender thing, but uh, our, our, our generation, it is, I think, train ourselves to be able to handle that kind of conflict and use it to, or find a, a female way of having conflict, use it to, to push yourself further rather than subsiding into peacemaking at a lower creative level. Does that make sense? It does, and that leads me to my question, what's the working relationship between you and Ronnie like? Oh, we hate each other. <laughs> we're, we're more than friends, we're enemies, actually. I adore her. Um, no, we are very, um, it's interesting, we're very sort of different, and we're very alike at the same time. So it, that, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? It's Ronnie is the most brilliant front of house person you could possibly have in any business. You're, you bring sort of magic and glitter in. Whereas I'm sort of much more autistic and I, you know, I really like the deep work. I love the, you know, researching a movie. I like writing. I like being shut away in a room and thinking really deeply about things. And I find the, you know, being interrupted side of so uh, that's production great. company. So I've got galloping really. ADHD <laughs> and she's got raging autism. So as you can see, it's a perfect partnership. Um, we're, we're finding our way through it. We through the are woods. finding our way through it. But it is interesting what Sal says. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, you know, being always the only girl in a writer's room about, you know, writing sketches and they were, I couldn't find them and they'd be at the end of a big pile of sketches and then the classic thing of coming up with an idea and all the blokes going, oh, such a, that's not funny. And then, of course, hearing the same idea being told an hour later and that is really um it is great that it has changed I think it's slightly replaced now I mean I still think in terms of the way that middle-aged women are treated in film yes and television, I mean, the figures are still shocking. shocking they're getting slightly worse aren't they I can't remember off the top of my head but the although there are there's now a third in movies a third of all speaking characters are women they're less likely to be the protagonists and there's a massive drop-off after age 40 in character I think gosh I mean I did write it down but I, I can't really remember there's a massive massive drop-off this is the acting your age campaign you can go to and find out yes. all those stats can't you exactly yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. but we should say yeah. because maybe it hasn't been said that it's pretty tricky for film critics as well and this has a massive knock-on effect in attracting investment to a movie so Anna is, 69% uh, of all film critics are male. And male film critics are, you know, sometimes like different films and also much more likely to name check the director if they're of the same gender as them. So if you imagine trying to, there's still very few female film directors. It's very, very hard to get finance for a second feature as a woman. And uh, it makes a massive difference having you. So should we have a round of applause for the oh, wonderful Anna and Girls you. on Film? And for the whole team, Heather, the whole team, girls on film. Um, but thank you, Sally. And, you know, it means a lot to me that you've supported the podcast from the beginning and you and Ronnie in particular have always um, shown your love for it and your support for it because we did launch it not just to shine a light on women in film and feminist issues but also female film critics because you're right, we need more diversity in that area. It all feeds into it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it really, really yeah. does. 
Sophia, you looked like you wanted to add something there earlier, but we may have moved on. <laughs> I was talking about the number of the percentage of women in film, and I've often found that in pretty much all the films I've made up until this sort of new era of, of coming back to the business and after my baby, I was always like the only girl. You know, there might be a hair and makeup and the hair and makeup team, but it was just literally there'd probably be four women on a film set with 80 blokes, but it's all changed now. It has changed. The women, I mean, the, the female spaces on a film set are completely fantastic, though. Like, So the makeup bus is like the kidneys of a film set. The film can go toxic or be purified in the makeup truck. And um, costume as well has always been a safe space. I was in, you know, I've been in, you've been in great movies. I've been in quite a lot of not very good movies. Um, we met on a, <laughs> on a not very good, because there's always a thing. Like on the call sheet, let's say there's 40 cast in, in the film, you know, numbers sort of five to seven, 10 in British movies tend to be a, you know, British comedy TV actor. So we've, we've clocked up quite a few between us, but I was in Mean Machine, which stars Vinnie Jones, who uh, is someone who has much more charisma off camera than on, but a very, very nice person. <laughs> uh, but there was a scene which Time Out might even have been you, called the shortest, most gratuitous sex scene in cinema it history. Wasn't me, but it wasn't yeah. you. It's where I was supposed to just have sex with Vinnie Jones over a desk for no apparent reason. And I was terrified about this because I've never, unlike Sophia, have never been the grand beauty. So I've always had crippling body shyness. And so I had a plot with the girls in costume. I was like, right, I'm going to wear all my costume at once. And so I had, you know, loads and loads and loads of layers and little tiddly buttons. And, and so Vinny literally could not unwrap me. <laughs> <laughs> And he went, oh, fuck this for a game of soldiers. Just push my head down under the desk, which made it more gratuitous. So it was bad for women in the film, but good for me personally. But I've always been very grateful to costume for yes. protecting me in that way. But that's how it used to be, you know. Oh, my gosh, I know. I did a sex scene when I was eight months pregnant. Oh, yeah, with... I think you spoke about that on Girls yes, on Film before we can... Let's not go tell back Tell the listeners where to find <laughs> that one if you wish that X-rated content. Um, I want to know what you're both working on now. You have this wonderful working relationship. Well, you know that we are trying, have been trying for some years to write a film about uh, dogs in film, but that's currently parked due to terrible coincidence, which I won't go into. Um, when I say park, it's just standing with one leg <laughs> up against a tree, actually, at the moment, having a long week. But it will happen. But it is it going to happen. happen. Well, we've got, there's a, there's, a, there's a company called Film Soho, and with, there are about five little um, companies, and they're all sort of separate companies, but vertically integrated. Um, and they, we're, like uh, a, we're a tiny a media empire. Studio. Too small to be evil, but we have aspirations. If we were going to be wanky, <laughs> we'd say an eco, amigo, media, media ecosystem. ecosystem. But that's far too pretentious so we won't say that um but um within that sort of sally and i head up the the, the production arm the production arm and it's called captain dolly we're really happy with that name it's a great like name most and your names logo you go off amazing. Yeah. Well. Even when people don't like it, we, we still, still have like a it. rictus grin in our face. So we have <laughs> actually got a couple of films in, in pre-production, which is quite exciting. And it's been a, the great thing about the little company is because we've got post-production, we've got distribution. And in fact, the company just 
distributed Joyland as well and some some great films uh, recently. So when we are making something, it's like it can all be... The, the dream is it's like a little mini Ealing studio. I know that's a reference that now everybody <laughs> who's young don't know. It's like um, Ealing comedies were films in the, in the 50s, which were all different, but they all had a sort of unified identity. So that's what we're sort we of hoping to, preference, to do. Uh, unusual voices, I guess. So the films we've distributed have had, quite often had neurodiverse storylines. Yes. Yeah, unusual storylines. Absolutely. Yeah. And so us, we've, we, our first one, though, isn't neurodiverse or anything. No, it's, it's called The Monk, uh, The Mermaid and Melise. And it's quite interesting because it's um, working on it with uh, this wonderful woman called Leila. And Leila basically, it's about a very famous bass player who's a session guitarist who is called Guy Pratt, who is actually a famous bass musician. And he had, to cut a long story short, he was asked to go to Italy to basically play some bass clinics. And he's played with everybody, very, very famous people, you know, Madonna and Michael Jackson and everything. And he turns up in this very obscure area of Italy that Stanley Tucci hasn't even been to. It's an Italian joke. They say, Molise non esiste. Molise doesn't exist. Yes. Just so it's a, uh, like, so it's not actually the back end of Italy, but the but joke it, is... It's actually it's actually the world capital of bagpipes. True story. But as a Scot, I'm not going to admit to that. You came what I'm on about, you know, sacrilegious. And also a bit of the capital of awful. Anyway, this aspiring... <laughs> this aspiring... Sounds delightful, doesn't it? Very beautiful area. This aspiring rock manager turned out, true story, to be a, a tripe salesman. So this famous musician was taken round to Sutter, but it's a very, very funny little script. And uh, actually, uh, it's all to do with, uh, the Italians are quite obsessed with progressive rock. And so we have a soundtrack that we're not allowed to tell, we're not allowed to name names, but suffice to say, there is a kind of concept album from a, an imaginary band with the most extraordinary musicians that we are so excited about, legendary, so... Fingers crossed about that. That's so we've got exciting. that. And then our, our second one, we think, is a classic car movie, which we are hoping to shoot in the autumn, which is jammed full of comedians from Vic Reeves to, to you. To John Bishop. John Bishop, uh, Catherine Kelly. Um, McConnell, yes, and it, it's, not, it's not best in show David with cars, Morris but that's, in it. that's an easy way of understanding it. It's really a family drama. So someone, a patriarch who's channeled all his love into his classic car collection and the family unravels at this car show and you get to meet all the lovers of cars who happen to be there and it's about uh it's about the death of the combustion engine and <laughs> it's got some beautiful cars in it actually we've got loads of there's quite a lot of stars in that so that's quite exciting yeah that's so. that, that'll be loads and loads and loads of fun and then i'm really hoping i've been trying to get a romantic comedy between two Down syndrome leads away for films clock up years, don't they? And that's partly why I love films so much because there's just so much care goes into a project over so many years. I mean, a friend has got a film they've been trying to get away for 30 years that's still not dead, you know? Uh, this is in its eighth year this year, this romantic comedy, and it's English man with Down syndrome and a Swedish-Kurdish woman with Down syndrome. They meet at the Global Down Syndrome Convention in Stockholm and neither of their families want them to be together. 
and it's you know with complications so we're really really hoping to get that over the line for I mean there's quite a lot of projects that we've got here at the moment that it is but it's hard if you're not a studio I mean you know as in you're not a studio picture because all of these things and you we've learned so much when you go to Cannes and I don't just mean A-list is going up the red carpet with a with a backless frock on I'm talking about actually the marsh de film the proper film market which is like a big uh, a big a farmer's market with no nice cheese. Um, and, you know, you think, oh, you realize, oh my gosh, of course, the film business is a business. And when you're involved in international sales and distribution, as, as inevitably you have to be, because, you know, you talk to young filmmakers about their dreams and their aspirations, and it's getting that balance with them, fulfilling what they want to do and staying true to the dream. But at the same point, you have to raise the finance for it, you know, and there has to be at the end, it has to sell. So I think that's quite a good, it's, it's, it's done us a huge amount of good to have our sort of noses wiped in a big dose of reality really just was reminded of a quote and I can't remember who told me but it was someone out in Hollywood saying you know honey it's show business it's not show art wow <laughs> so you know especially you're talking about getting things made and the sort of producers financing side of it you know it really is it's all about the money in America yeah. you know it's less so here but ultimately you know they need to kind of make money so. But that, that's why it's hard for new people to break in. Why it's, it is such a it is amazing that there has been change because it used to just be rich white men gambling, and they gamble on things that have been previously successful. Why would you gamble on something new? You go, oh, this person is successful, so we'll we'll go with them. This feels like a very good time to get the audience involved because I'm sure they've got some more questions for you all about getting into the business and exactly what we're just talking about. So if you, we have a roving mic here, Ellie has it in her hand. If you could put your hand up and wait for her to come to you. Um, just firstly, thank you very much for coming to Belfast. Um, Thanks for having us. Yeah, <laughs> love and, and the second question, or the question that I wanted to ask was about, because um, you touched on imposter syndrome there, and I, um, I, I work in the women's sector, so I, I, I work with a lot of women who, who suffer from this. Um, so I want I wanted to ask if you had any advice um, for especially for younger ones um, coming up that feel that and what they can do uh, to try and get over it. I suppose I think having a network of female friends, having a mentor, and having a network, and you do notice women have more qualifications. I think that just helps you feel more secure. So people coming out, you know, if you know, I worked with a young director who was just so confident. I thought, gosh, I've never met a woman this confident, this young. And it was because she had done everything. So she had been interning on film sets since she was 15. <laughs> She'd gone and done a, a drama degree and then gone to um, National Film and Television School and then gone to RADA and done the director's school. So she knew she knew it. So that was really helpful. And the other thing is to swap places. So with us, having swapped onto the producing side and having been crippled by thinking, oh, my script's not good enough, I can't hand it in, we have been appalled at what some of the blokes hand in. I mean, it's absolutely astonished that they thought that was, like, that was okay. And, and it's a and kind of confidence. It's yeah, bad confidence. scripts. Scripts. Go, that's not remotely... Well, uh, Sally and I wouldn't have dreamed of not in a million years which which can be um can really be prohibitive because you know if you're not and i think there's an element of that sort of woman can be very very conscientious 
Whereas a lot of guys, I'm not, I'm not saying they're not talented, but they're a lot more sort of gung ho and it's a lot more confident. Um, I suppose they have had more opportunities. And, and so one of the things that's been really crippling for us is, you know, a repeating no. Because you think, oh, it must be because my script's not good enough. But if you think about the probabilities, it's just not probable that of 100 scripts submitted by men and 100 scripts submitted by women, 50% of the men's are okay and 3% of the women's are okay. It's, that's just not probable. So even if my script isn't good enough, those stats are really against you. So then you end up questioning yourself and you can get caught in this spiral and lose your freedom of expression. And it's really important that we support each other to get through that. And also that once we get there, that we, and this is what this podcast again is so good at, is that we learn to distinguish as women between the way things have been done just because they have been done like that and the ways things actually need to be done. Because you can confuse, because great films might have been directed by men, you can, you, you can, I've found myself thinking that a bloke might be better, finding somewhere deep inside myself a kind of, confidence with a bloke that maybe I wouldn't have is that true actually is that true I don't know I mean I had to be challenged early on when I was writing to write better female characters which felt really shaming but you just need to look at yourself your internalized misogyny I think yes yeah, like your own unconscious bias which we talk about all the time we all have it even you know raging feminists I was like feeling myself. so ashamed yeah. admitting that like how have no, I said that out loud and I think it's really important because you know it's we're all learning all the time and all looking inside ourselves hopefully. it is hard though because I think things have moved on greatly I mean when I started doing stand-up there was like Joe Brand and me <laughs> and some <laughs> Hattie Haver I mean it, it has changed a huge amount but I do think I, I still I, I still get so upset when I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Vi, but certainly as a woman of a certain age, you suddenly, I mean, look, most couples really, they tend to often meet each other at college or through friends. And the vast majority, of course, lots of couples have got big age differences, but they tend to be of the same age group, film and TV still. I get it that sometimes you've got a kind of ludicrously rich hedge funder and he's got this very young, but just in, in all sorts of parts, the woman has to look younger than her children. And you're not actually allowed to uh, sort of go out with someone your own age that's a woman. So if you see, um, you know, the male, uh, uh, um, the male equivalent are contemporaries. Yeah. They're still, but the girls are 15, their wives or their girlfriends are 15 years younger. So what that leads to, and that sounds all a bit weird and bitter, and I don't want to sort of get into all that, you know, sounding like, but what it leads to is that... But she is quite weird that and I'm bitter. Quite, oh, I'm weird and bitter. <laughs> but um, um, but it's, it's that... It's that you get uh, you, you you get whole swathes of the audience of women of a certain age, you know, intelligent women, but they don't recognise themselves on screen. In that, you know, it's the kind of hags and harpies over a certain age, or they're or or the women always have to be of a certain age are protagonists. You know, oh Gary, put your trousers back on. You know, I, I mean, all my friends are a bit anarchic and mad and that hasn't really changed as they've got older yeah yeah so I do think we've got a way to go in terms of the portrayal of women on screen does anybody agree with I me agree. on well, that I, I was thinking of the latest Bill and Ted movie the most recent one that was a couple of years ago and they still obviously have the Keanu Reeves and co as in the main roles um, but the women playing the exactly same characters of their wives that played them you know in the 90s were recast with younger women. It made no sense in the timeline. 
It's, it was just well, absurd. Kelly McGuinness as absurd. well. Yeah. I mean, in, oh, yeah, um, exactly. Top, in Top Gun Maverick, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, you mentioned interesting old role throw of a women typist, artist, pirate king. Carol Morley's new film is absolutely brilliant. Monica Dolan in that role. So I would, I mean, she's not even that old, but I would um, sort of flag that one up. But I'd love to hear more from the audience. Um, do we have any more questions? Yes, there. Thank you. Thank you all for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. But I can't have uh, Ronnie here in Northern Ireland without asking her to. Could you, uh, Ronnie, just for the podcast, try and impersonate a Derry girl, asking Michelle O'Neill and Jeffrey Donaldson to try and get together and uh, have a bit more funding from the Assembly for Arts oh, in Northern no. Ireland, Listen, please? Do you know what? I'm absolutely terrible. I do do a dodgy Northern Ireland, but this is the worst thing I could in front of a Northern. That's cruel. That's the. It's the equivalent of. <laughs> crucifying uh, an impressionist I mean there's one cardinal sin is you must never ever do a Frank Spencer impression that was the cardinal sin but I'm too terrified to do Northern Irish in front of you will you do your Welsh one for us then or, or another what, what would be another does anyone want a different Ronnie just impersonation? if there's any actors here there is a, an accent bank which is great online you can look it up so you can look up whichever part of anywhere and they've recorded I mean there's one uh, on Instagram, you'll always find the accent challenge, but the, there's an accent bank where they've recorded different people speaking from different regions. So you can listen to people of all different ages, different sexes, everything. It's fantastic. Fantastic tool for an actor. What's it called? Just the accent bank. Just accent Google bank. accent bank. Yeah. My ex-comedy um, partner. I've moved on now. <laughs> <laughs> We, we do do stuff on stage together. I force her to. I have a wonderful time. I'm not quite sure if Sal does as well, but we have a lovely time. We're the, like everything a pound shop, uh, strictly come dancing pair. Like she's the, yeah, <laughs> she's Claudia Winkleman. If her fringe had all fallen out, she'd been stretched on a rack and then dumped re repeatedly in a vat of bleach. And, and uh, <laughs> she's a kind of poor man's Tesco. Imagine watching a test daily on a, never the a wrong vitamin. aspect ratio. Never had a vitamin in her life. Like a kind of Tesco daily. That's what we tease each other on stage all the time. We think we're hysterical. I mean, we're not yet to find out what and that's the, all that matters. That's all that matters. But Alistair McGowan, my ex sort of comedy partner who you saw earlier, um, he's party trick is he can do, he's so extraordinary at accents, he can go around every single postcode, and not only does he do that, if someone, if you come up to him and you're talking, he'd be able to say, I've seen him do it with people, he went, born in Canada, spent 10 years in Nottingham, oh. <laughs> then lived in France for a bit, and I'm like, oh my God. Like in My Fair Lady. Yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. obsessed with Amazing. fanatics and things Very like that. Very cool. I would like to say I will do my Irish and Welsh outside afterwards with a drink outside for the that audience. That sounds like a good deal. I yeah. will be there to, to watch that. A time for one or two more questions. Hi, yeah. Um, I actually work in location sound recording as a sound assistant. And I think whenever I first started, one of the hardest things was when you're putting mics on a cast, it's one of the most like you know, intimate ways you're going to interact with somebody. And I just wondered what makes you feel safe? Have you had any experiences on set and just... Yeah, it's one thing I'm always met with shock when I come in to do mics because they don't expect a woman and it's very male dominated. So I just wanted to know your perspective on it. I've got a good radio mic story. I was using Transformers, you know, the big budget. It was like $320 million and they had like the best equipment all around and these radio mics that were like amazing. And I had, um, Mike was on, the pack was on my 
you know, here. And I went to the toilet and when I pulled my trousers down, the radio mic, which cost about $2,000, fell into the loo. <gasps> Um, so that wasn't great, um, but no. Uh, but did you did you fess up? Because I once did. Yeah, that, I had then to. Then I lied I about had, it. And I I'm, had not, to. I'm not a big liar, but I just <laughs> we were really in a hurry. Same thing. You're going, go 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 go. Like if you go to yeah. the toilet, it's a bit of a thing. I I've taken um, a few and sold them on eBay, and then told them I've no, I haven't really. But that's quite <laughs> funny that when when you say 320 million, I think the highest budget thing I've been is 320 pounds. I think that's. <laughs> So mind blowing. Just to answer your question, I mean, I you come it into is an the interest trailer. Sometimes you bring if it's a male um, miking a woman, then they'll always say, "Do you want?" You know, they'll bring a costume girl in, but I don't need that. I mean, it's not it's not really intimate. But I mean, of course, you know, you got like sometimes with costumes, the sound guy has to like you know. But I'll always like stick my own tape down so... and feed the stuff through. But I wouldn't, I, honestly, I really wouldn't worry about that at all. But that was a really interesting question. Thank you Darryl. for that. Yeah, really I've, I've had um, embarrassment the other way where I was on something with young men doing it and I had, for some reason, oh, covered yes, myself in body please. oil. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, you know, he's putting it on and it wouldn't stick. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm all oiled up. Oh, and I felt no. like Harvey Weinstein. I felt like... <laughs> The most awful perv. <laughs> very good question. And all those answers were very revealing. <laughs> um, we've got time for maybe one last question. If you've been burning to ask, there we go. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask what your favourite part of working in the film industry is. Well, that's a nice one. For me, on. it's about being part of a team. I love being amongst fellow creative people who are, you know, come from all different avenues of talent. You've got lighting designers, riggers, carpenters, actors, makeup artists. And it's just, I, I just feel very, very at home on a film set. And it's just not, I mean, human beings by nature, we're not supposed to be sort of isolated creatures. And the downside of being an actor is that when you're working, it's brilliant. But when you're not working, you go from kind of being surrounded by 50, 100 people every day to on your own in your flat going, well, what am I, what am I going to do now? And then often it's a very unpredictable. I mean, I've had the worst run I had was I had three years where I couldn't get a job. Auditioned for three, no, two and a half, to be fair. But every single audition tape that I submitted, I didn't get the job. I think it, I think Sophia's right, though. I think it's because it it's these great, when it does work, and it is very tough getting it away and getting it to oh, this cohesion to sort of happen. But it's, it's, I mean, I actually trained originally in art department. So I have a huge love of production design and art direction and, you know, uh, you know I, and I, I think it's, it's the craftsmanship, it's the artisans all coming together to make this extraordinary, um, you know, creation. And it's to, and it just to see people at the top of their game, you know, whether it's sound, whether it's a scenic artist, whether it's, you know, lighting. I just love that sort of cohesion of these, you know, different crafts people. Thank you. True collaboration, isn't it? I, I love that moment where it's almost like everything goes warp speed. Like your perception goes warp speed where everyone is completely in it. It's like you're all suspended. It is properly magical. It's when the creative, you know what I mean? It's, it's like the best job in the world. 
creation is happening and there's no past and there's no future, there's just now and you're all sort of held together like slightly off the ground. And yeah, it's just glorious. It's just, there's nothing like it. Um, Although I have to say, the best part of an actor's job is when your agent calls to say you've been offered the role of, and then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> I don't know. I love making the crew laugh. You, you uh, very good live with uh, you know thousands of people, but I, I don't really like live more than four hundred people, and so my ideal audience really is a film crew. So doing something and a film crew, and you just see the boom starting to go up and down. They can't quite hold it in and people are sort of hold, stuffing jumpers in their mouths behind their behind the monitor. That's that's pretty joyous. You have entertained us so much today and I wish we could sit here and talk today, but we will go out to the bar and carry on chatting. And um, I can't wait for your impression, Ronnie. Uh, oh dear. <laughs> can I say, first of all, before I thank the rest of the crew, my wonderful guests, Sophia Miles, Sally Phillips, Ronnie Ancona. Thank you very, very much indeed. Round of applause. Um, Executive producer, Hedda Archbold. The director of Cinemagic Film Festival, Claire Shaw. Eleanor Hardy, Sophia Dare, Mairead Maguire, Lydia Scott, Emma Butt, and the Cinemagic team. Dave and Peter, who fitted my mic very respectfully. Um, if you want to listen to Girls on Film, please find us on all the usual podcast places or use that QR code there, which will take you to the podcast. Click and subscribe. Thank you so much for having us. I've been Anna Smith. Thank you again. And thank you for listening to Girls on Film. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, producer Lydia Scott, assistant producer Eleanor Hardy, audio editor Emma Butt, and our principal partners Vanessa Smith and Peter Brewer. And happy wedding to Vanessa and Pete, by the way. Thanks again to the Cinematic On the Pulse Short Film Festival. And thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Sophie, did you get your chocolate orange? Yeah. I got you uh, a dark chocolate one because I know you don't like milk. I do like milk chocolate. Oh, right. <laughs> well, I could exchange it. I could talk to my chocolate people. Oh, yes, please. <laughs>